Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Cut Through Vine for June 11, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, got a big show, and um, tonight... We had a guest so big with such a great book about economics. We wanted to lead off the show with our guest for the evening, um, author of Understandable Economics. Welcome, Dr. Howard Yarth. Hi there. I'm glad to be here. Yes. Well, well, I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with the book, but kind of just start off and tell us about your background um, and, and, you know, what makes you an authority on all this. Well, I, you know, I, for all my life, I've been so frustrated that people are, don't understand economics well. They have politicians telling them one thing, other people telling them another thing, and there's so much misunderstanding out there. And I think that we are not going to get good policies if people don't have a better understanding of how the economy works, because they could be... They could be told basically anything by their politicians, and they need to have some background information so that they know how to evaluate what they're being told and to separate the policies that will help them from the policies that are going to help their politicians. So that's why I wrote the book. It's just frustrated me all my life that people, people, people don't – I went to high school in New York City. We didn't learn economics. Students in high school typically don't learn economics. And when it's taught in college, it's taught with formulas and graphs and charts, and people don't really get much out of it. That's why I wrote the book. Yes, well, well that, that was the motivation. Well, let me ask you this. Um, the reception so far, do you think the right audiences are reading it, or is it more folks that do have a decent grasp on economics have gravitated to it? That's a fantastic question, and I wonder about that myself. My great hope is that people who all their lives have wondered about this but were too intimidated by it, they, they may have taken a course that had all sorts of formulas and graphs that, that left them with no better understanding than they had before they took it. I, I'm hoping that, that people who are just interested in what's going on in society, what's going on in the world, pick up this book and read it because my whole goal in writing the book was to make it accessible. Uh, you know, I, I also tried to make it entertaining. I don't know how successful I was with that, but I definitely, I think I succeeded in making it accessible and easy to read. So my hope is that people who, who have a good heart, um, they want to see good policies adopted, they want to see America and its economy thrive, and they, I hope that they pick up this book so that they get a better understanding so they could see through you know, all the rhetoric out there and the politicians who are, who are trying to mislead them for their own personal motives or other people who have other motives. My, my hope is that just good-hearted people read this book 
get a better understanding of our economy and therefore get to a better sense of what, what policies are good for our nation and for them. Yes. Now, you've broken it down into a lot of different chapters, each one covering a different subject. And I want to talk about one or later in the book, the national debt. Um, I find the national yes. debt to be kind of a politically intriguing issue and, and frustrating in the way it comes out. It's um, the Republicans, when Democrats are in control, particularly the White House, it becomes a big issue for them. Democrats don't seem to talk about it much at all, even though the last time the national deficit was paid off was under a Democrat, Bill Clinton, and um, mm-hmm. th- there's not a lot of talk of it, even though that was the last success. Um, what is your take on uh, it as an issue and the way it's discussed and how it affects our economy and kind of what's the best way that we start eating that elephant? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I, I just, for your listeners, I, I never want to lose anyone because of a term that they may not know, so I'll, I'll take half a minute. The deficit is how much each year the government spends in excess of what it takes in. In other words, it, each year it spends more money than it takes in. Uh, how do they do that? They borrow, just the way you and I would do it. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It was the last time where there was a balance between spending and income was under Clinton. The debt, the total debt, is the accumulation of all those deficits. You can think of it as if you and your personal finances spent more each year than you earned, each year is your deficit. But the debt you wrapped up over your life, that's, that's the total debt. America's debt is $31.4 trillion. Is that too big? The point I make in understandable economics, $31.4 trillion, $31.4 billion, I can't get my head around these numbers. These numbers are so huge. I, I, in fact, in the book, I, I have this anecdote about a congressperson mixing up a billion and a trillion. It's very hard to keep these, these straight. So what do I do in the book? I divide $31.4 trillion by the number of Americans. How much is that for each of us? How much debt is that for each, each American? That's about $68,000, $69,000 per American. Now we could begin to get, get our heads around it because everyone could get their heads around $68,000 or $69,000. And is that too much? Well, what I conclude is it depends what you spend it on. If you knew someone spent, incurred $69,000 of debt to go to medical school, to start a business, to do something worthwhile, you would say, no, that's, or buy a home. Almost everyone who's bought a home has a debt more than $69,000. It's a question of what you've done with the money. If you took this $69,000 and used it to go on extravagant vacations or just push your bills down the road, no, it makes no sense. The point is that by looking at it on a per-person basis, you be, could begin to decide whether it's too much or not. And that's, that, so that's, that's the first step in deciding whether it's too much. And what have we done? I think a lot of our spending, there is a lot of wasteful spending. This, that's undeniable. But this is the, mo- the most important point I want to leave. Is $69,000 per American a bankruptcy-inducing existential crisis that's going to tank America? No, it's a rich country. The question is, does it make sense or doesn't it make sense? And that's the point of the book, to get people to think about it in terms they can understand and to make informed decisions as to what makes sense. Yes, that was an excellent illustration. 
I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Catherine. He'll pass it to Tim. If there's anything else that we need to wrap up, I may come back at the end. Catherine, thank you. Hey, thanks a lot for being on with us tonight. This is absolutely fascinating. (laughs) Um, I have a little bit of a personal story to tell you because it's so uh, uh, important to me. Um, So when I saw that when David sent this around, I, I, I didn't take the effort to read your book or to listen to it on Audible. But when I was reading about it, I was like, this is perfect, because my father was an economist. Oh, interesting. And, and um, you may have heard of him. He was a uh, member of the Council of Economic Advisors back a long time ago. Anyway, um, he wrote several books, and after he passed away, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to pick up one of his books, and maybe it'll, I mean, I spent my, my childhood with him. I should be able to figure this out. And I picked up a book and it was like reading another language, like another like alien language. And so I, you know, I, I know a little bit about economics, but not as much. So I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I'm sorry I didn't read it before the show, but I, thank you for, um, I think it's really important for, like you, I didn't ever learn any economics in high school. I think I took an economics class in college, but I hardly remember it. And I think a lot of people just, you know, they, I, I think your illustration of the national debt and what I also want to ask you about is this big controversy about the debt ceiling. And, mm-hmm. like, how do you explain that? Do you have an easy explanation of that? Because we seem sure. to run into this constantly. Every, whatever, two years we have this battle. Sure. And I just want to say that I try not to be political in the book. I try just to help explain things, hoping people will reach their own conclusions. I know so many people have conclusions out there, but my hope is that their conclusions are based on how the world really works. So getting back, so you asked the question about uh, the debt ceiling. Basically, Congress every year appropriates money. They come up with things to spend money on, and they also impose tax rates. The problem is the spending always exceeds the tax rate. So it's just like your own individual finances. What happens if your annual spending is $100,000 and your income is $80,000? You borrow $20,000. If you do that for 10 years in a row, you have a total debt of $200,000. That is exactly like our national finances. The problem with the debt ceiling is that to borrow money, the Congress has to authorize the, the, the Treasury to borrow money but they've already authorized all this spending. And if they don't authorize enough borrowing to cover all the spending, the U.S. Goes in, becomes insolvent. It becomes a deadbeat. Now, everyone's, it's very clear that if, if, they, if they weren't prepared to pay for it, they shouldn't have enacted whatever program they enacted in the first place. That's easily said, but it's too late. They've already They've already enacted all these programs. The taxes, there's a shortfall. They, they have to borrow in order to not, not bounce their checks. And that's what the debt ceiling is about. It's authorizing the borrowing for already incurred expenditures. And I'll give you the analogy to your personal finances. If you decided you spent 100000 you 80000 coming in, you say, debt ceiling, not taking on any more debt. You, you default, you, and really bad things happen. What are those really bad things? No one really knows because it's never happened. 
The United States government has never been a deadbeat. But I can tell you one thing, it's not good. <laughs> right. You, you can, yeah. So my, we know my, that. My, yeah. So my response is, if you, if, you, if you don't want to borrow or tax to raise the money, you shouldn't be spending it. Cut your spending. Don't just decide, we'll spend it and not pay. That's irresponsible. And that's the simplest way I could put it. They, they spent the money and now they don't feel like paying for it. Well, too bad. Don't spend the money in the first place if you don't want to pay for it. That's my response. Yeah, I mean, every mother has told their child that when they grow up, right? Every, you know, we all know that story. Well, I don't um, know where I, those children somehow got elected to Congress and they forgot that <laughs> lesson. Um, my other question is about um, taxes. So we see a lot of, you know, information about how tax rates have gone down, especially corporate tax rates. Over well, probably ever since the eighties, um, I think. Yeah, Reagan. Um, mm-hmm. Do we think? Do you think that uh, raising those tax rates, maybe not to the levels they were before, but raising them at some, to some point, would would boost the economy, or are we, or is that going to hurt the economy because the you know corporate people will figure out some other way to you know, avoid paying them? Well, again, I try to avoid giving opinions. I, I, I just I, try to avoid it. But I'll tell you this much. Here's a fact. Guess what the top rate was under Dwight Eisenhower, uh, a I, relatively conservative Republican in the 1950s? Do you know what it was? I think it was like 70%. 91%. Wow. <laughs> no, I'll go out on a limb. That sounds too high to me. But – he was a Republican. The top tax rate was 91%. And the 1950s were a boom time. The, the America's middle class was growing faster than any middle class in the history of mankind. So I'm not saying if you had 91% tax rates, this is not the takeaway I want. You'll suddenly have a boom for middle, class, middle income people. All I'm saying is there's clearly room to raise tax rates. And the most important thing I'm saying is if Congress authorizes spending, it should be prepared to pay for it, either by taxing people or, or borrowing. It shouldn't just say, we, we spent it, we're not paying for it. And so, yes, I, I think they have to figure out a way to bring spending better into alignment with taxes. I think th- that's so logical. Why don't we uh, – Yeah, and I think that's people- good for the – I'll go one more step. It's really bad for the economy for everyone to be worrying about the U, whether the gov- checks from the United States government will clear. That's bad. And, and, and I said I don't want to give an opinion. That's an opinion. Really bad. And it's, it's, it has to be um, something that, that is, is very – even the United States didn't default. They raised the debt ceiling. But it, it does undermine the credibility of the United States government. I'll make one point. Standard and Poor's and Moody's that rate debt. Germany has a triple A rating. Canada has a triple A rating. The United States has a double A rating, which is one notch below. Why? Not because we're poorer or our economy is worse. It's because our political system is so, is so dysfunctional that they that the the risk of repayment is is political. It's not economic, and that's why our our rating is lower. And that has consequences. Because when your rating's AAA, 
you get to borrow it at, at lower rates. It's just like an individual. If you're a AAA creditworthy individual, you can borrow at lower lower rates than someone who's who's one step less creditworthy. And so that's this is an issue. Well, and it's also a reputation issue, right? I mean, we yes, we have these absolutely. we have these battles every year or every two years, and it has it can't be, you know, it doesn't look good. Like, oh, the U.S. And is arguing again economy, about whether right. they're going to pay us. Yep. So uh, I think that's a really good point. Okay, I'm yep. going to pass it to Tim. Thank you so much for being with us. It's really great. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Oh, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Go good. ahead, Tim. Good evening, Doctor. Uh, we keep hearing the R word, all about a recession. But the yep. economy is adding lots of jobs at historic levels. Stocks are trading higher. Consumer news is pretty good. And manufacturing is robust. That doesn't sound like a lead-in to any recession I've ever heard of. So while the talk about a recession right now? That's a great question because the Federal Reserve, America's central bank, is raising interest rates. Why are they raising interest rates? Because there's inflation. How does raising interest rates stop inflation? Well, it's really very simple. And if you took Econ 1, it doesn't sound very simple, but I'll try to make it simple. When there's inflation, people are just spending, spending money too robustly. They're bidding up the prices of goods. By making money and borrowing more expensive, you get people to spend less, to, to slow down spending. And when they slow down spending, the pressure on the prices comes off. There's less pressure to raise prices. Prices don't get bid up as much. So... The question is, how much should they raise interest rates to slow down inflation? And no matter what professors say in, the, in an economics class, there is no formula for that. There is no objective formula for telling the Fed exactly how much to raise interest rates. So if they don't raise them enough, we don't get inflation down. If they raise them too much, we get a recession. And what's going to happen Anyone who tells you they know is, is not telling you that is just, is just not being honest. Oh. No one knows for sure. There's this concern that they're raising. Some people are concerned they're raising them too much, which will cause a recession, slow down spending too much, causing a recession. And other people are, are fearful that they're not raising them enough so that inflation will continue. And the mm. only <laughs> and the, I, it's, it's, you may not like this answer. The only way we'll know for sure is if, if we're healthy enough to live a few more years to see how it all plays out. Yeah. So what you're, what you're really saying is recessions are practically impossible to accurately predict. There's that famous line that the economists predicted uh, nine of the last five recessions. They're, yes, they're almost impossible <laughs> to predict. Okay. Uh, let, let me ask you this. We had very high inflation last year for a variety of reasons, most of them associated with coming out of COVID, of course, and everything opening up. But how did the U.S. economy do so well last year, even with this high inflation? It's remarkable. I, you know, <laughs> I think... You know, I live in New York City, and people always say, don't bet against New York City. I would say the same thing with the American economy. Don't bet against it. The American economy is really strong. It's really resilient. There are some political problems. But 
America's economy is, has enormous strength, and it, you know, there was a lot of pent-up demand um, after COVID abated a bit, and, so, and that caused the inflation. People started spending more money. And, um, yeah, the, and when, when people are spending money, there's, there's businesses react. They put people to work. So the economy is, is doing really well. The question is, um, now that the Fed is raising interest rates, trying to slow it down, will it slow it down too much and throw us into recession? And I, all, I, all I could say about that is I certainly hope not. Mm, really? I want to ask you one more question, and, and, and this takes a, a shot at our friends in Congress, I suppose. But I, from my viewpoint, it would be practically impossible to pay down the national debt by cutting spending alone. Doesn't, well, doesn't it have mm-hmm. to be accompanied by a tax increase? Well, let's think about how the U.S. government spends money. More than three-quarters of all the money it spends are, is on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, um, and, and national defense. Those four mm-hmm. things count for almost 80% of the spending. So by definition, mm-hmm. if you cut everything else, maybe you would, you would um, undo the deficit. Maybe you cover the deficit. You literally can't cut everything out. So mm-hmm. the question is, and again, I try not to be political. Do you want to make cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense? That's, and that's where the money is. You know, that's Willie Lohman was asked why he robbed banks. He says that's where the money is. That, those are the four programs where the money is. You just can't uh, cover the deficit by cutting the other 20%. It just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So, so what you are saying, if you want to balance a budget and you want to do it consistently, you have to have a combination of cuts yes. and tax mm-hmm. increases, right? Absolutely. It just doesn't work otherwise. You, you, because you, even if you cut, if you eliminated the entire Board of Security, the Department of Education, all of this, you still maybe you would get to um, a place where you've covered the deficit, but you can't. That would be impossible. You would only – Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and defense would, all, would be all that's left, and that would be an enormous problem. So, yes, yeah. you'd have to cut, cut those four programs to some extent, not completely, but pare them down, or raise taxes to uh, address the deficit. Hmm. Final question, and I'm going to throw it back to David. Is the study of economics, does it deal a lot with theory? <laughs> I think it does deal a lot with theory. And what I try to do is I try to stay away in understandable economics from some of the more esoteric ideas and just mm-hmm. explain, for instance, what the Fed does. This is a fascinating statistic. They asked economics students, how is new money created? The majority didn't know. I think economics, for whatever reason, is taught very poorly. So I try to keep it really simple. In the book, I explain it's a little convoluted how the Fed creates new money. But I think it's really important for people to, to understand these things because to, to, for the greatest understatement in this whole discussion, money has a big influence on people's lives. The economy has a big influence on people's lives. 
and they should have a better understanding. I can't resist saying one thing. I went to high school in New York City. We were required to take trigonometry. When, <laughs> and I have a healthy regard for math. I was actually a math major in college, but come on. The economics is so much more important, and it's just not taught. And when it is taught, I think it's not taught well. So this was my attempt to try to remedy that in, 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 to some small extent. Yeah, uh, you, it's been 50 years since I took it in high school, but I still shudder when I hear that word <laughs> trigonometry, and I shudder when I hear the word statistics. <laughs> so well, trigonometry that, is, is still being taught. It's still a requirement, at least in New York City, it's still a requirement. Wow. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Thank you. David, yes. David can, I, can I interrupt? I have a, uh, another question. Sure thing, Catherine. Okay. Um, is a balanced budget a good idea? Hmm. In theory, but I'll tell you one problem with that. When the economy is not doing well, when people are unemployed and people, and people are not spending enough money and the economy is c- contracting, the answer at that point is no, it's not a good idea. Because someone has to spend money to get people back into jobs. This happened during the Great Depression. And if we had a balanced budget then, it would have been a really bad thing. When, when people won't spend money and businesses won't spend money, people can't get jobs, and so they, get, they, they cut down on their spending, and the economy enters a death spiral. Someone has to come in and start spending again. And the only entity that could do that is the federal government. So generally, yes. A balanced budget is a good idea, but when the economy is in the doldrums, someone needs to inject some life into it, and that's what the federal government could do by doing deficit spending at that time. So that's, that's mm-hmm. my answer to that. Okay, great. Thank you. Go ahead, David. Sure thing. Well, Dr. Yaris, uh, happy to say I've never taken trigonometry, but I've taken macro, micro, <laughs> and comparative economics. So maybe I've got a more well-rounded education in your opinion. Um, but before you leave us, tell us where can folks buy the book. I know you have a personal website, and if there's places people can follow and connect with you on social media, share all those things with our listeners. Great. Uh, the book is available on Amazon, as you're probably not surprised, and virtually every online seller and many bookstores. Um, my, my email is Howard Yaris at gmail.com, and my website is Howard Yaris. I'll spell that, H-O-W-A-R-D-Y-A-R-U-S-S.com. So a lot of ways to reach out and to get the book. Yes. Well, good deal. We, have th- we thank you so much for coming on the show. And if more economic, political issues come up, which inevitably they will, we may reach out to you again in the future. I would love to. I would love it. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you sir. Thank you. Yes. All right. That was uh, Dr. Howard Yaris, of uh, you know, part-time professor at uh, uh, NYU and up in New York, that wrote the book Understandable Economics. Excellent book. Pick it up wherever you can. It really does, um, you know, bring things in a very understandable terms without, you know taking an economics course. That's kind of a, a layman's economics course, which is his intent. But um, 
let's kind of move into some of our political talk now. And obviously there was an issue in which we started mapping out the show, had not come up, but by the end of the week definitely had again. Um, former President Donald Trump has been indicted again on federal charges, this time related to all of the documents um, that he took from the White House down to Mar-a-Lago, and we even have pictures this time. Uh, Tim, as you give us your thoughts on this, if you want to add any details, feel free to do that. Well, yeah, most of these details are pretty well published. There were 37 counts, 31 of them dealt with the willful retention of national defense information. Uh, uh, of course, his aide was also indicted, uh, Will Nauta, on six counts, mostly on obstruction and concealment. Uh, the uh, indictment itself is runs about 49 pages. I would suggest everybody download and read it. Um, and it basically lays out the fact that Trump resisted the government's, in this case, the National Archives attempts to retrieve them um and 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 uh there there are a lot of other things he did uh, uh, along with this that 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 led them to the indictment and and as we know he will be arraigned uh in South Florida in federal court on Tuesday so there we are yes i, I guess the travel's better for him uh, at least it's down there near his uh, compound in Mar-a-Lago um, instead yeah. of having to go up to New York. Um, and, and the South Florida location could be a, an interesting aside, and we'll ask a question about that later. But, Catherine, let me just ask you this. Are you surprised? <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, I'm I'm uh, uh, yeah, None of it has been surprising to me. His reaction, other people's reactions, you know, sort of the the mega reactions have been, you know, oh, you know, it's horrible. It's, you know, the Biden administration, you know, retaliating and all that stuff. But then some of the more uh, uh, reasonable conservatives have said, well, he never should have done it. And this is this is the correct um, path, and of course the Democrats and uh, general, I think general public believe that it was the right thing to do. So we shall see what happens on Tuesday. Yeah, so we will try you to get out of it. Talked about this before, Tim, but I will tell you one find thing I find surprising or ironic about this. This is a person who, when they were in the White House avoided reading policy and briefings, you know, material to get ready for uh, events and speeches and meetings as much as any president, probably more than any president in our history, yet he stole reading material. Do you find this kind of ironic, and what would be the motivation then for stealing reading material when you hate to read, seemingly? Well, I, I think he had some quirky idea about publishing a lot of this stuff in memoirs down the road, you know, or, or something like that. So another thing he was doing, too, and one thing that's got him in trouble, we know that Trump 
shared these classified documents, showed them to private citizens on at least two occasions. You know, this is some of this, hey, look what I have here. See that? It's classified. Oh I did that, blah, blah, blah. I guarantee you he that that's another reason he did it. And surely he wasn't fool enough to think that all that stuff was just his. Uh, I, I mean, I just... I, I, it just boggles the mind, but I, I, it, it's all about Trump. It, it always is all about Trump. And and sure, I can just see Trump in a room like he was up there in New Jersey showing off this document saying, I can't let you touch it. Don't get too close to it because you see it's classified. And blah, blah. He, he actually said all that stuff. <laughs> it's... Oh. Yeah, well, now let me get into that about it being the arraignment being in South Florida this time. You know, when he had the arraignment in New York, he talked about, you know, and I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, said, oh, let's have these protests and all these things. He's talking this talk again, different location. Um, Even though I don't think South Florida is the most Republican place there is by any means, it's probably more Republican than Manhattan Island. Catherine, do you think the fact that this is happening in Florida may lead to a little more unrest, maybe a strong word, but um, more of a presence of the MAGA crowd? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I suppose it could. Um, I think there's some attraction to uh, protesting in a place like New York City just because they think of it as such a democratic place that, you know, they're going to show them libs, right? So I'm not sure that it has that same attraction. But there's probably more people closer to South Florida that could show up and protest. So it'll be interesting to see Um who shows up and how many. Yeah, and Tim, I've got a Florida-centric question for you. The governor of Florida is one of Trump's supporters and political opponents at the same time. Is there anything Ron DeSantis can do? And if there's not anything he can do, will he get blamed for something he never could have done in the first place in this primary race? No, there ain't nothing he can do other than run his mouth. Uh, this is federal court, um, and 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 so Ron DeSantis, his part of it, outside of taking advantage of it, which if he is, has any brains at all, being that he's running against Trump, he should be hammering Trump instead of out there hollering, oh, it's all... Uh, stage thing for political purposes he he should he shouldn't do that uh but buddy him and most of them will um if if i had a question though uh going back to what you and Catherine were talking about uh i would like to know why the department of justice actually requested that this be held in, and don't hold me to this, but I believe it's in the 14th Federal District. And the reason I say that is because of Judge Eileen Cannon. 
there was a one in four chance that she would be the judge assigned to this if they held it there. And, and lo and behold, there she is. You guys remember Eileen Cannon, right? The special master well, judge. <laughs> She's the one that last year, um, you know, Trump was in. They, they were they were in court about a lot of this last year, and she appointed a special master. You might remember a third party to oversee these documents, which a lot oh, remember, of them yeah. were classified. And and uh, I believe it was the 11th District Court that immediately the government went to them, and they just threw her whole her whole proceedings out and proceeded to just hammer her for you know way overstepping her authority. So essentially, she was appointed by Trump. She was doing everything she could to help him, and now she's gonna preside over this? Ooh, I hope they ask That's for another weird. judge. We think, David. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and that's, that is crazy. And here, but here's the thing. My understanding is that this case will not go to trial for prior to the 2024 election. Given how, you know, slow the judicial system often works, that's not a surprise. So, therefore, this trial will be held in the court of public opinion in November 2024 because, once again, my assumption, I guess you theoretically could say it will be held earlier in 2024 in the Republican primary. Um, I guess I've already given away my answer to how much I think that will impact. Catherine, how much will this impact Donald Trump? We can start with the primary and then we can move to the general. I don't think it'll have much impact on the primary because his base is the ones that are going to vote for him, and they they think it's a witch hunt. So, but I think it could have an impact on the general. I think moderate moderates and independents aren't going to want a uh, newly elected president to be in uh, in court in federal court. Yeah, T- Tim, same questions. Well, we're polling out, new polling out, Trump's 38 points up on DeSantis now, a lot further than that on the rest of the field. He's actually increasing his lead. So in the short term, it, this is going to help him. It's going to help him with his base and uh, with Republican voters at large. going to be a rally around the flag thing, and they're, they're going to buy into this uh uh, it's all a political stunt thing. Uh, a lot of them think they have to because they, they voted for it, you know. Uh, but um, when you get to the general election, that's going to be a different animal. It may or may not go to court before then. Uh, I know the Department of Justice is going to ask for an expedited proceeding. And at which time Trump's attorneys are going to take over and start every delaying tactic known to man, and then some. So it, it, it'll be a, it'll be interesting to see if it makes it to trial before then. So, 
Yeah, it. Um, I, like I said, I don't think it'll affect him. It may even help him in the Republican primary. In the general, I mean, it just is more of the sideshow that I think people have gone wary of. Grown wary of. All of these new voters that are coming online, I don't think that a lot of them are going to be like, wow, uh, let's get Trump back in there. I think that's going to be a pretty low number. And so those are things well, that hurt him. Now, of course, it may help motivate his base to turn out in numbers, you know, really akin to what they did in 2020 because, I mean, you know, people just turned out in 2020 across the political spectrum. So I guess that would be the yeah. only yeah. upside yeah. in general is maybe folks yeah. are just coming to turn yeah. out for him. Yes, sir. You know, you know, David, we're, we're a political show, and what is really going to be politically uh, interesting to me about all of this is look at all this coming down the pipe. Now, see, he's got to go to trial in March in New York City next year, right in the middle of primary season. And still to come, along with this arraignment and, and indictment, is the Fulton County thing. There's going to be something coming maybe as early as August. And then the special counsel is doing a separate investigation on everything that went on on January 6th, and they that might hit too. If it impairs Trump's ability to get out and campaign, and he really does do retail politics, you know, with those rallies and all of that, I wonder if that might derail him. What do you think? You mean like he just doesn't want to run because he can't run his style where he goes to the um well, you know, the airplane hangar and plays Macho well, Man what and does, does that give him, what what does that give him to do during primary season? Just do mass media? If he can't be that out there in per person with those rallies that he loves so much? That's his bread. But and could butter. he not do nighttime rallies where he um you know, he's in court during the day, and then he flies, and then all his little people build him up, and he has the appearances uh, where he tells them how horrible they're out to get him, and Hillary Clinton was so much worse, and, you know, because that's apparently their latest and, talking point. Yeah, I, I, don't know if presiding, I don't know if presiding judges in these trials would uh, cast a kind eye on him if he's doing that on days he's in court, but... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. He's got a lot yeah. coming. It, it, yeah, and, he'll be a and, busy and person. Let's, and let's not forget, he's not young either, and not yeah. very healthy. I mean, that's yeah. where that's a wear and tear. Like if you're, you know, in court all day, that's you know high pressure, and then you're going to jump on a plane and fly to you know who knows where, Indiana or whatever, and have a rally and then fly back to New York and be in court the next morning, that's a lot for anybody, but especially for an old hey, man. Catherine, to quote Congressman Dr. Ronnie Jackson, what can I tell you? He's got good genes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was the informed medical diagnosis a few years ago. But, Catherine, I want to ask you something else, and then we're going to move off of this. Um, is Did you find it kind of crazy that the attack person they've really been attacking – with these latest charges, 
in the last few days, it's not Joe Biden, not even Hunter Biden's, you know, evil laptop, but it's been Hillary Clinton. Um, to me, that shows like kind of a disconnect. You're like Hillary Clinton's not even elected anything. She's so eight years ago by the time 2024 comes around. Yeah, they love to attack Hillary. You know, but well, that being a attack, or is that just like a a height of patheticness? Of course it is. But but you know, I think it does appeal to the mega people because they think of her, you know, you know, his opponent in uh, 2016, and he he was, you know, she was mean to him and. She's evil and married to even worse evil. So I, I don't think it's uh, unusual. I agree. It's stupid. It's like she's not elected to anything. She's not, She, you know, she's playing with her grandchildren. She's not like, she's not doing anything. So Yeah, but, I, I honestly, I but think it, it, does not it, it's kind of, yeah, it's a telling sign that Joe Biden's pretty likable, and he doesn't make a very good enemy for the right, um, which I think is just another telling storyline. Well, let's get back to our Senate preview of 2024, and we left off with Texas, and now we've got to move due north uh, pretty much to the Canadian border uh, with Wisconsin. Now, I'll be honest. When I was thinking about this segment, I didn't think much about Wisconsin, but Tim – you wanted to interject Wisconsin into the conversation. Uh, tell us why you think Tammy Baldwin might be somewhat vulnerable. Well, uh, the, the closeness of the state, it's evenly divided. You saw what happened. Trump, Trump won Wisconsin by less than 25,000 votes in 2016, and Biden won Wisconsin by less votes than he won Georgia by. Um, it, it, it's just a divided state. We've had some good news by taking over their state Supreme Court, but still the state is very divided. If there is a purple state in this country, I think it's Wisconsin. Um, and so any any Democrat, especially a, a national Democrat like Baldwin's running for re-election, yeah, she's going to be targeted. Um Although, since we've talked about that before, uh, things have broken a little bit in uh, Senator Baldwin's favor because all of a sudden uh, the prime person, a congressman up there that they they wanted to run, who was running, uh, let's see, one point behind Baldwin in the polls, has decided not to run. That leaves Republicans scrambling for a frontline candidate up there, and I don't know if they have one, so that could change things altogether. Yeah, and I Do think you know also why Tom they decided not to run? Um, he said that if Republicans maintain control of the House next year, there's some plum assignment he is supposed to get some plum committee assignment he would have more power in the house in other words he said 
than being one of a hundred senators and being a backbencher. Now I don't know how much how many grains of salt we should take there, but that that's 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 the reason he gave. Okay. Yeah, I, I'd say a lot. Because if you can defeat Tammy Baldwin, then if you're the Republicans, you're winning the Senate. Um, and then he's in a majority and a body of 100. Um, so I take a lot of grains of salt. Um, Catherine, how vulnerable do you think Tammy Baldwin really is? Um, I think it's a lot going to depend on who they end up running against her, obviously. Um, I'm sure that there will that Democrats will rally around her. She'll be able to raise money and um, you know do have a robust campaign. But if if there's a you know strong Republican candidate, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. You know, so much depends on what happens with the with um, the presidential candidate on the GOP side and, and you know, what kind of coattails they have and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think mostly it depends on who they run, run against her. Yeah, I think she's really popular. I think she's more popular than the lean of her state. Um, she's done a good job, I think, doing a lot of constituent service type politics. So, therefore, she's more popular in Wisconsin than when we'd realize she is outside of Wisconsin. Also, Dane County, where the University of Wisconsin is, may be the most Democratic trending, getting people activated um, county in America with those kind of voters. I guess where Ann Arbor is would be um, kind of in that conversation as well. Um, and and I, well, I understand that upper blue read, that upper um, – Wisconsin region that's turned so red um, where not many people honestly live has kind of hit peak Republicanism. Like it, it was a little less Republican in 2022 than it was in like 2020. Um, that it's kind of, or even 2016 for sure. It's actually, it hit its top. Um, and there was just nowhere to go but down from there. So yeah. I, I, I know why the Republicans have to you know, look at this race. It's kind of like how we have to look at Florida and Rick Scott. There's only so many targets, and and she's the next one up after some of the other states we've talked about and will talk about in just a minute. Tim, did you want a final word on this? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, t- two things to remember. Uh, that race up there this year was so important because, number one, it stops the Republicans from pulling any funny business if there's a close election. And number two, you talked about upper upper Wisconsin. Green Bay, the students there poured out the vote. They did it in all the college towns over in in Eau Claire and and and, and of course Madison and all they just poured out to the polls. They do that again. And she you can bet your last dollar she is gonna be mentioning Roe v. Wade in her Trump oh, yeah. in her stump speech. And it's gonna play very well with those young voters up there. They pour out the vote like that again, guys. 
I feel pretty good about Wisconsin all the way around. And, Tim, I will tell you, we cannot forget lacrosse because if we're going to think about Wisconsin college towns, we have to mention lacrosse home of the classroom of Dr. Anthony Chugoski, who's a friend of the show. Uh, and so and and and, and a classic photo from up there this year showed students at that very school lined up down a breezeway and outside waiting for an hour to cast their ballots. Yeah, Good there was thing. a lot of colleges, um, yeah. and, and Wisconsin really did lead the way along with Michigan. Um, you know, more so than other places up there. Well, let's see if we can get one more state in. This is just the the, the preview that won't stop ending, but this is a tough one. Um, Ohio, you have Sherrod Brown, who's so popular, been elected to many offices in that state, congressional and Senate, uh, for many years, and he keeps hanging on because he has a very popular mystique, even though he's probably more liberal, more you know, away from the center than, say, a John Tester, very possibly than a Tammy Baldwin, but he keeps winning, but Ohio is a tough state. Um, Catherine, what's your take on Ohio? I haven't looked at um, looked at those the details on that. Who's running it against him? There's a multiple uh, primary opponents at this point, oh, kind of okay. like last time when Tim Ryan faced off and there was like, five or six Republicans. It's it's shaping up sort of like that, maybe not quite as many. Tim? I think Sherrod Brown is really popular um, and very very productive. Like, he he does a lot of work. He's not – he doesn't – he's not lazy, right? He he does a lot of work. I think he – I, I'm betting that he has good constituent services and brings home, you know, the bacon for the state. Um, so I'm not too worried about him, especially um, if he speaks out about abortion and um, some of the other, you know, well, especially about abortion and and healthcare. Um, I think that will help him. Because Ohio is a real bad state on that, so, um, but I'm not too worried about him. I like him. Yeah, Tim, your take on Ohio? Well, I'm I'm gonna take the other tack. I'm I'm worried. Uh, recent results. Uh, you 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 know we we talked about Ohio in the Senate election. Uh, last year and and we we had the best candidate you could possibly think of to run up there and jd vance beat him and and, and it, it it was not really it, it was fairly close but not that close i look at the 2020 results joe biden carried seven counties in ohio now all of them was the big cities toledo cleveland akron columbus dayton cincinnati uh, and then just got wiped out in the rest of the state, and Trump won it by eight points. Ohio is trending red. I know that that Senator Brown has done fairly well in some uh, some of the more rural counties up there. This is going to be a tough one to hang on to. Yes, um, I, I tell you, I was in Manuel's Tavern 
in December of 2004 when John Kerry talked about how close the presidential race was, and he mentioned it all framed around Ohio. He said it was it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 80,000 people. They switched their votes. He said you could have fit the people basically in Ohio State Stadium, and if they would have switched their votes, he wins Ohio, he wins the presidency. That's the only time the you know the Democrats have lost the popular vote since 1988. That's how important Ohio was. Other than the magic that was you know Barack Obama and his political acumen, which is you know just <laughs> off the charts, Ohio's trended Republican you know for multiple cycles now, um, and mm-hmm. so therefore it is such a tough state. Um, I, I will say this. I think when they were interviewing people back in 2016, I remember them talking to voters that had voted for Barack Obama twice and were going to vote for uh, Donald Trump. Voters that really were voting on economics, I really don't think they were like some of the voters we put into a group. Either they're just Republicans and they just vote Republican or there's a little bit of a, a racial resentment quality. These folks honestly didn't seem that way, these people they interviewed. Or the, I remember one gentleman in particular. So it's such a tough state to figure out. I do think Sherrod Brown is popular. I kind of feel about Ohio. I think it's going to be this year's Nevada. Cortez Masto, she won. She won more than we thought she would. But all of us were like, you know, if there's one race that's going to flip, it's going to be hers, even though we, I guess we could claim that um, Raphael Warnock's victory over Herschel Walker was closer um, she faced a whole lot better opponent um, than Herschel Walker. But, you know, that was the tough race to pick. I kind of think we're going to keep talking about this race for the next year and three months, roughly. And I believe it's going to be the one where we're the least decisive on all the way through Labor Day and into our election night preview. I, I just really think it's going to be that way, and that's because of – Ohio on one side and Sherrod Brown being the candidate on the other. So um, kind of finishing up the show tonight, and next week we have somebody that actually put some numbers on things, and we know he's polled some of these races, not all of them. But from public policy polling, Tom Jensen is going to be our guest next week on the show, um, and we, we enjoyed Howard Yaris tonight on the show. But until next week, it's been the Kazoo Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America.